Impact Alpha. This is a special episode of Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. LiquidNet recently hosted an event at our global headquarters in New York called Demystifying Impact Investing. In partnership with the Tri-State Area Africa Funders Group, the event featured a panel moderated by Impact Alpha's very own David Bank, who's the founder and editor-in-chief. David spoke with three leading experts in the impact investing field. Georgia Levinson-Cohen, Executive Director of the Pershing Square Foundation, Brian Trollstead, Managing Partner at Bridges Fund Management, and Liz Luckett of the Social Entrepreneurs Fund. A condensed version of the panel conversation follows. The first voice you'll hear after David's question is Liz Luckett. Let's listen to it now. This may be 101 for some of you, but let's get some sort of definitions out and some just basic parameters. What is impact investing and how is it different from grant making? And let's just be succinct. What I would say is the rationale around impact investing is sustainability. So um, most of the investors in my fund are high net worth individuals. And the one thing I would say they had in common was a sense of um, uh, incredible philanthropic and social motivation, but a a slight fatigue around uh, philanthropy. So the sense that if there's a cause I care about, if I stop funding it, it may go away. And that's a tremendous burden, I think, on people who are huge funders. And so this concept of uh, finding a sustainable way to perpetuate a social good is, I think, the genesis of much of the social impact, is thinking about how can I find a earned revenue model where um, they can fund themselves at some point to, to address various problems, and it's really across the board. Yeah, and, and sort of chapter and verse from the GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network, is an impact investment is an investment with the intention to invest in a company or a fund or a project with, uh, with the goal of uh, achieving a financial return and measurable social or environmental results. And it's very different from grant making because grant making, at the time you make the grant, there is no expectation of return of capital at all. Um, the harder definition, how is it different from a traditional private, private equity investment that has, you know, jobs are created and impact is had by any number of, of businesses. And that's where the, the definitional um, ambiguity lives. But from a grant maker's perspective, an impact investment is one where you are structuring a contract with our counterparty where you have at least an, a reasonable expectation that you're going to get some or all of the money back based on the business model of the underlying entity that you're interacting with, that they have a way to sell a product or service that generates money sufficient to then pay you back over time. But you as an impact investor may be willing to step into funding something that a traditional venture capitalist or a traditional bank would be unwilling to given the risks. And I would just add what you know, Brian mentioned at the beginning that sort of the nature of the returns is sort of what varies. So that impact investing, I would, I would agree. Um, I teach a class on social entrepreneurship, and sort of through the class, we look at the evolution of the field, which I think has moved from a metaphor in the nonprofit sector that talks about sort of entrepreneurial and business-like nonprofits to, to social enterprise per se. So we are talking about actually investments in companies that generate returns, and then the question is, are we talking about risk-adjusted market rate returns? Are we talking about a willingness to take on concessionary returns, what that is? But we, I think for the most part, it's you know, demonstrable social and or environmental impact, but with some expectation of financial returns. So the, the, the GIN definition, as you say, has, I think has the three elements, right? Some, some expectation of return, intention, and measurement, right? Um, and the, in the philanthropic world, the measurement actually, I think, is, is fairly natural. I mean, you measure whether the grant is successful as well, but um, 
people are sort of shaking their heads. <laughs> Do you know whether your grants are successful or not? Um, uh, that um, becomes a, actually an important part of this, as, as Brian said, because the measurement of those social environmental outcomes may or may not be, have been important in private equity. However, is becoming more important across the board, regardless of impact investing, right? The, um, those kinds of non-financial indicators, call it ESG, you know, whatever, what, what have you, those are becoming more central in all of, of finance. So how do those kind of trends on the finance side play into what the opportunities are on the impact investing side, particularly for, for philanthropy crowd? Yeah, I think, I think impact investing right now is at the crossroads of two pretty distinct trends. One is innovation in philanthropy to fund social enterprise that is viewed as a more effective or cost-effective way of delivering a certain set of outcomes using the tools of debt or equity to invest in businesses or social enterprises. The other is um, the responsible investment um, practice, which has been around for you know centuries, really, but it's been um, mostly since the 50s and 60s when a bunch of folks in in the U.S. and Europe, as asset owners, said, "Hey, I want to invest with my values." And so, civil rights organizations, faith-based organizations, said, "I do not want to invest in organizations that have bad labor practices or invest in South Africa or now more recently uh, our our big coal or or climate uh, contributors." And so responsible investment is really about looking at the, the ESG or the environmental, social, and governance uh, characteristics of the underlying assets and asking questions about those and trying to do less harm. And there's more and more capital that is at least seeking to find ways to align with the underlying asset owner's values. Um, impact investing uh, is an extension of that to try and not just do less bad, but to do more good and to invest in, um, uh, you know, new solutions to problems of health access or educational inequality, et cetera. Um, and so you are seeing this kind of merging of two different traditions and distinct traditions. I think there is, in fact, far more money that wants to get into impact investing from the private side, where asset owners are asking their advisors or banks, hey, find me a, an opportunity to invest. The scale of that opportunity is, you know, dwarfs the amount of philanthropy that's going into impact investing. Um, but there are many of us who are raising capital kind of from both ends of that spectrum, and that's where some of the confusion lies. Our fund focuses on financial services, um, health, and economic empowerment. Um, and while doing that, we try to invest in female entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs of color and diversity. So we, you know, we try and address many things. But um, I think for us, we, we started looking at um, companies that were able essentially to diligence properly. So things that were with um, a strong software data analytics background. Um, we found that in looking at low-income communities, they were very disparate and difficult to aggregate, so we started looking at B2B companies that had already aggregated those communities. And I think the best way to talk about it is through examples. So um, on the health side, we have a company in northern Mexico, in Monterey, that does low-cost diabetes care. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting company. He set up a clinic, one clinic at first, that just um, started moving people through four stages of um, help, whether it was access to, um, you, you did meet briefly with the doctor, you got access to drug care and, and whatever prescriptions you needed, a nutritionist, and um, I'm forgetting the fourth one. So you move through these aspects quickly and, and efficiently. This is a guy who went to MIT and sort of thought about very much the operations of this business. He capped the cost of care at $250 a year. And so the, the 
in critical part of what would be impact here, and I think it's worth mentioning, is that in Mexico, um, diabetes is one of the top killers, and um, it's also the number one cause of suicide because there's so little access to care. Um, if you were going to a government-run uh, clinic, it's about a four-month wait, and so people are literally dying waiting to see a doctor. Um, so he now has 15 clinics, but he's been open for um, about seven or eight years, and he's had lots of interest. So those clinics now open and are at break-even within a month. Um, and it keeps that cost at $250, and that's the tricky part. So companies are really interested. He had a bunch of large pharmaceutical, large um, uh, sort of private equity companies swarming around saying, let's put money in. You have three working. Let's just let's blow it out. Let's make it 50. Let's move through Mexico. Let's move other countries, because if you can solve low-cost diabetes care, you have a global solution to something. Um, and he very much was looking for capital that would not make him move that fast. Because the way to move that fast is to raise the price. And so keeping the cost at $250 a year was critical to the value of what he was trying to offer, that it was available to everybody. And that's where impact investment dollars and slow capital, I think, was really valuable. I, I think it's a good example of why um, certain kinds of capital are more favorable than others. Um, I've had people say to me, um, you know, oh, isn't, isn't impact concessionary? Doesn't that just mean you're losing money? And the answer is no. I mean, these are, this is profitable as revenues are growing year over year. Um, the problem is it's just the speed. You know, I think the private sector says, oh, you have something that works. Let's add capital and let's just make, let's blow it out. Let's make it huge, you know. Um, you know, you're, you're solving hunger in this small village. If I gave you a billion dollars, could you solve global hunger or could you solve hunger in Africa? And so the answer is always, not so fast. <laughs> we have to do this slowly and deliberately and making sure that um, you understand the nuance of how to keep the price low and, and affect enough of the community you're looking at. Yeah, um, so we now shifted entirely on developed markets, but I think somebody over uh, here mentioned malaria prevention, and that was an issue where Acumen Fund um, spent a bunch of time trying to identify private sector solutions that could complement the vast amounts of public funding that goes into malaria that's needed um, in, in malaria prevention. And, and we had invested in um, a malaria bed net manufacturer, um, a malaria wall lining company, and a, an artemisinin combined therapy um, processor on the continent. And for each of those investments, we were working in, in um, market failures where there wasn't a market for malaria prevention. There were not products available. Um, the response from the global health community was for a long time to ignore it and then to throw lots and lots of, 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 of resources at it, sometimes effectively and sometimes ineffectively or inefficiently. And our view was that um, impact investing coming from the philanthropic tradition should identify ways where private capital and innovation can thread the needle between and, and connect government resources and philanthropic resources that are needed. And I don't think any of us believe that impact investments alone can solve all of the world's problems, that there will always be a role for government, there will always be a need for philanthropy, but that impact investments, if done well, can do things sometimes more quickly and more scalably than the large private institutions or large nonprofit and government institutions um, that, that can oftentimes not really think from a user or end beneficiary consumer perspective. So I think impact investments into those kinds of companies 
often inject kind of a design thinking, a consumer feedback, a market sensibility that's just frankly missing when you go to the World Health Organization. And when you see the you know, millions of bed nets delivered as a box checked, but realize that many of them are just being dumped and or used for other things beyond what they were intended, you realize that a market solution that responds to consumer needs and delivers the kind of prevention that is needed is, is where impact investment can be its best. Yeah, I just, oh, this is not an example, but it's just a note. I think on both of the health examples um, that Brian and Liz mentioned, I, you know, Brian said a few moments ago that sort of some of the, the, the confluence of people wanting to both do less bad with their investments and do more good, I think that what these two health examples demonstrate, and certainly the cases of migration or climate change sort of remind us, is that these investments now also help everyone collectively think differently about cost. So both of those examples were not just about doing more good, but sort of a collective social cost savings. Um, you know, and I think that the reason we have, we're, we asked, are we seeing sort of more real commercial capital moving to the space? You know, the, the insurers and the reinsurers are the ones who really understand risk when it comes to, for example, climate, right? And so, so it's a, a very different thinking, both about cost savings. Um, and real risk, sort of risk when it comes to overburdened health systems, risk when it comes to exposure to climate change, those type of things, which I think is just very different than traditional philanthropy. Okay, so I want to make sure we move from, as you mentioned, theory to practice and give, leave you with some practical things. If I say the phrase PRI, do you guys know what we're talking about? Raise your hand if you, well, raise your hand if you do, so I don't have to, and if you say MRI, similarly, right? But um, maybe what we can do is talk about how philanthropic money has and can move into impact investing. So those are obviously two channels. There's others as well. Um, but And maybe put it in the framework of what does it take to convince, of course, not you guys because you're here this morning, but all your colleagues or your bosses or your staff or your investment committee or whatever, whatever, whatever the case may be? What does it take to, to move philanthropic money towards impact investing, assuming that you've got a, a thesis and a case that, that makes sense on, 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 on the, both the impact side and the financial side? So what is the, the real world like? If you've raised money from a foundation, if you are a foundation, what does it take? I mean, you know, I, I think that in some ways it's, it's trying to both clarify and then hold consistently to what the objectives are. So I, I and I, you know, this, this weekend, I think, and, you know, reading on a very different topic in the Times about, um, you know, s stability and genius and all of that, there's somewhat, there was, um, you know, but someone, someone referenced, I think, like F. Scott Fitzgerald that said, you know, true intelligence is the ability to hold in your mind competing concepts and still sort of be cogent. And I think, you know, e e even we sort of at Pershing Square Foundation, whether we were thinking about program-related investments or primarily mission-related investments, meaning like investments coming out of the corpus, so you sort of ask the trustees or ask your board, you know, what are we trying to achieve with this? Do we really, do we, how much do we care about social impact and how much are we trying to achieve the type of returns that would allow us to make these type of investments or grants in perpetuity? And we'd get very different answers, I think, to be fair, from the principals on, on different days. So I, I think some of it is just defining what you're hoping to achieve with those investments and then actually sort of sticking with that. I think we, um, I think when I asked you whether to only raise your hand, if you knew what MRIs and PRIs were, I may have neglected the folks who didn't raise their hand. So maybe you can briefly touch on that as in your answer, Brian. Uh, just um, yeah, sure. So um, foundations, if, if that's the kind of 
modal entity we're talking about are basically two different businesses. One is an asset management business that has an endowment that is trying to invest towards, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent returns, which those of you who are familiar with asset management is not an easy thing to achieve and is often managed or advised by professionals who are very risk averse and who will follow a traditional kind of modern portfolio theory. Um, you are allowed to invest from the endowment into mission-related things as long as they pass a fiduciary test. If you know, Bridges Fund Management is as good as you know, Sequoia Fund number six, according to your advisors, then sure, why not put $10 million into a commercial impact investor? Uh, it does not have to have any necessarily mission relation, because the endowments of most foundations are invested with no regard to mission for the most part, and so the mission bar on what you might do out of the endowment is quite low, but the commercial bar is quite high. Uh, most endowments of uh, a certain size, and I was at the Hewlett Foundation uh, last week, $9 billion um, endowment, 200, uh, 2 billion of it is invested in private funds. They don't invest in impact investing because it's just too hard. Their, their check size is a $50 million check. Now, if you've got a $50 million uh, in, endowed foundation, it's, it's too small. You know, you should only be investing kind of 500,000 to a million into private opportunities, and, and then it's just, it's just not worth staffing up the capability to do that. So that's the endowment as hedge fund side. The other part of a foundation's uh, uh, business model is grant making. And a program-related investment is a, an investment you can make out of the grant budget, the 5% required payout that you have to make. It has to pass a charitability test. And the thing that gets tricky here is that it doesn't necessarily have to just go into something that is charitable. It has to go into something that is charitable according to the mission as your foundation defines it. So if you are water in Africa and there's an amazing opportunity to invest in solar in Africa, you theoretically, according to your lawyers, can't invest in that because your mission statement says nothing about water. Um, and, and that's one of those kind of things that creates a huge amount of brain damage in the space is that this is clearly a charitable investment, but it's not your definition of charitable. Um, but the, you know, the program-related investment therefore also has to compete with the grant because you're going to put $250,000 into We Care Solar as a PRI, you're not going to have $250,000 to grant away to something else that might be compelling. Um, and one of the challenges, particularly for smaller foundations, is that grant making and investing are very different skill sets. And for a smaller foundation, you know, $50 million endowment, $250 million endowment, to have somebody who can understand and differentiate between a good investment and a bad investment on staff is, is, is typically not possible. Um, and, and therefore, you have to go to intermediaries. And like an acumen fund, we may not particularly care about you know, Namibia and, and solar in Namibia, but we might be an opportunity to invest in health in Africa. But your mission has to get, by definition, almost diluted the more you pass through different intermediaries. And so it's a, it's a real challenge. There are more people who kind of want to do it, but structurally, either from the endowment side or from the program side, there are a lot of barriers to doing it effectively. Um, so for those who are trying, I, I, I feel your pain. I would only add to the program-related investment piece of it. Um, what we see mostly in the private sector is a lot of those PRIs coming in as concessionary debt. So most of it's coming into for-profit um, startup type companies where the mission is aligned. And often if the mission is broad enough, that isn't a problem. So if you have a mission of anti-poverty, it's quite broad. Um, and we're seeing concessionary debt that does essentially get paid back and go back into the pool of capital into the 5% that can be re-gifted. So um, 
we have a company now that has just gotten a PRI. I can't say who yet because it's it, uh, who's giving it, but it's, it looks like it's almost 100% gone through. It's been a almost a nine-month process to get this money, <laughs> so it's incredibly difficult to get. But it's um, the company that's receiving it is a, uh, a company that does um, lowers the cost of phone calls for inmates. Um, so it's founded by a formerly incarcerated gentleman who spent five years in federal prison. He lost touch with his girlfriend and his mom during that time because the average 10-minute phone call from federal prison is $50. Um, so he no longer could afford to stay in touch and found this to be really egregious, wrote a business plan there, um, came out and started, was able to raise capital actually while on parole, which is very unusual. Um, and he then got into Y Combinator. He's really a, a, a total star. Um, and and he now is running a business that offers a subscription basis that goes through the through the sort of traditional um, uh, telecom outbound uh, phone network, so Securus and others who um, own those federal relationships, but he reroutes them to voice over IP. So they are now, uh, the cost of a call is capped at $10 per month, so unlimited calls for $10. He gives you a local number. Um, and has started this whole subscription basis, helping families stay in touch with inmates. Um, and they're getting a grant. So, so the point of that story was that they are getting a PRI now, which is a low-cost um, debt. And they will repay it over the course of several years. But this will allow them to expand, to you know, expand their um, their their product offering to a larger audience, to help them with marketing, to things that the the impact is so obvious to people, and so they feel that this is right in line with the mission of of, of philanthropy. Okay, so if we just sort of tick down what the potential obstacles might be, one on the PRI side, on the program side, might be. What does it have the charitable intent? Does it fit your own mission? All those kinds of things. Some of it is IRS driven. There's a set of new guidelines from a couple years ago that, that sort of lay, lays out what the sort of scenarios might be. Um, on the, um, uh, another obstacle that, that comes up, in fact, um, uh, your friends at Hewlett raised this, um, will program related investments crowd out grant making? Maybe there's enough private capital already uh, going to for-profits, but what there really is not enough of is um, uh, philanthropic money that can support nonprofits that do things that are not subject to sort of market models and whatnot, and so um, that's another potential obstacle. Let, let, let's, take a, let's take it very quickly on the program side, on this side, and then we'll, take, then we'll move to the investment side. So um, uh, sort of tips, for sort of dealing with those kind of questions, um, uh, objections to program-related investing from the program side. This is a little bit less of tips on how, how to do um, how to do a PRI, but I you know I think also raised was the sort of how you the skill set and staffing issue for you know relatively not necessarily the Hewlett's of the world, but the rel relatively smaller foundations. And I I guess. Um, what the examples just mentioned show is that you actually don't, if at a small funder, you don't actually have to find those companies, but you do need to find the Liz's and the Bryans of the world. So, so, the, so the good news is actually there are some extraordinary intermediaries that are sourcing these deals and these companies, in, in fact, sort of on behalf of other funders and investors. So, so I, I think you don't have to get to the enterprise level, but actually finding the right intermediaries um, is, is a little bit easier and also extremely effective. And then on the, 
on the MRI side, so the investments from the endowment, which are measured generally benchmarked against what you would have gotten had you not had an impact screen of some sort, the argument generally is, you know, you're going to sacrifice returns, and that may erode the corpus over time, and that's going to erode your ability to give grants in the future, and therefore your primary responsibility as an investment manager on the endowment side is to maximize returns so you can give as much as you can over to the grant side and they can do good on the grant side, but don't make me have to have this crazy impact screen on the investment side. Um, and uh, you might see this as you're raising money from those guys, and, but also as if you're inside the foundation, you might have to answer those kind of questions from your investment committee. Um, so this gets to the you, people have mentioned concessionary or people talk about trade-offs. You know, just how do you think about that question? The trade-off concessionary or, as we say in Impact Alpha, the possibility for outperformance for actually driving returns from, this, from an impact thesis. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, in part because of the tradition of impact investing emerging from the philanthropic, there is a view that impact investing by definition has to be concessionary. There are uh, those of us who actually believe that we are taking maybe uncompensated risk, but not necessarily aiming for concessionary returns. Um, Bridges' view, and we've now raised uh, 12 limited partnership vehicles, a billion dollars, that we are able to generate attractive returns to our investors by finding opportunities where impact and financial return move hand in hand. Um, and there are a handful of fund managers at large scale like DBL on the West Coast, which just raised a $400 million fund. And I think of their 2005 vintage fund is one of the best 10 venture capital funds in the world with an impact thesis. Although, um, and, although, and interestingly, that early fund was funded a lot by program-related investments from foundations, and then it's moved commercially, and now they, now, they, now they don't need that, and they probably wouldn't even qualify for it. Correct. Correct. So I think that there is, there's a limited, right now there's, uh, debate in the sector about how do you get all the commercial fund managers to put their track records on the table so you can begin to understand whether this is outperforming or underperforming. There have been some studies that Cambridge Associates did with Wharton that shows that a handful of managers that have worked primarily smaller managers, primarily in Africa and emerging markets, um, have outperformed other uh, venture. Um, but there, that's just sort of an open question. And, and at our end of the spectrum, I think we view this as an opportunity to spot things that the market is not looking at and that you can generate attractive returns. And there are those who would argue that the risk is lower. So, you're, you know, uh, that seems counterintuitive, but there's, um, there's a kind of investment you can do in the smaller funds and in looking at impact that the large funds, Sequoia and others, would never even consider investing in some of the, the companies that we think are very strong, have clear growth patterns, um, and the downside is less. You know? So they're shooting for the one that returns the entire fund and know that a bunch will go to zero, and we're, we're really never investing thinking something will go to zero. So it, it's a different investment profile, and, and um, uh, it's a different makeup of the portfolio. So I just want to call out one thing that, that, that's come up a little bit but, but hasn't been um, emphasized, which is, Looking, you know, I think one of you said market failure. You just said places where the market isn't looking. You said uncompensated risks. So one of the theses is that there actually is a uh, competitive advantage if you know something about a marketplace, about a sector, about a geography that the rest of the market doesn't know. You can make an investment that other people might not make, but for you, because you have the superior knowledge, is actually not riskier or, in fact, might have kind of returns because there aren't other investors in that space. So there's a kind of, um, 
there's a, there's a, there's a little bit of a, of a lever there where impact actually becomes an advantage. Okay, I'm gonna ask one more question to these guys and then we wanna throw, throw it open and, the, and, and so start thinking of your, of your questions. Um, the SDGs, uh, again, show of hands if you don't know what the SDGs are. Okay, are those uh, a useful framework? There were hands. There were hands up? Oh, I sorry, I didn't miss it. Sustainable development goals for the 2030 goals. Um, I always say, you know, the world actually has adopted, 193 countries, I think, has voted that we will end poverty by 2030, that there will be no hunger, that there'll be universal education, clean water, it's pretty ambitious. It's also a huge financial lift on, if you think about it from a sort of traditional aid philanthropy side, people talk about two and a half trillion dollars a year. If you think about it from a capital market side, two and a half trillion dollars, if you think about a liquid net side, two and a half trillion doesn't even get you out of bed, right? So, um, uh, so uh, it's becoming something of a, of a framework. How useful is it? How much do you guys Think about it, refer to it, talk about it. How much would you know? Should should folks um, be be using it as a way to, to sort of talk about what they're doing? I mean, I think it's been incredibly well received, and it's in, an incredibly simple way for people to organize their thinking around how they want to allocate their portfolios. So um, I, I think there's a huge opportunity to use it as an, uh, a chance to attract capital for big, bold goals like health and water. Um, there's also the risk of impact washing, where you just take your portfolio and you know, um, you know, a large private wealth advisor just sort of says, okay, our investment in, you know, in GE because they've got a healthcare division is now up against you know, sustainable development goal seven, and you know, we, can, we can claim that we're doing impact investing. So I, th I think that there is an opportunity over the next couple of years to really dig into where are folks delivering measurable progress towards the goals while, um, I mean, look, most conversations about impact investing at asset management firms are not this long and detailed and complicated with folks who've been doing it for 15 years. It's mostly the wealth advisor in Boca Raton, Florida, who's talking to the retired orthodontist about his or her fidelity account, and they read uh, something about impact investing or microfinance, or they care about climate change. And, and that conversation needs to be incredibly simple and straightforward. And right now, we as practitioners have done the field a disservice because it's really complex. And even, I'm, I'm sure most of you are gonna leave here feeling more mystified than demystified, but how do, you, how do we make that conversation at the kind of distal point of the wealth management uh, network simple? And the SDGs frankly do that because I'm a wealth advisor, I can put the SDGs in front of you. Which one do you care most about? Oh, really, you care about climate change? Well, we have a green bond fund for you. We're done, uh, you know, thank you, Mrs. Jones, right? And, and, and that I think is the, promise. I think if that underlying asset that's put into that you know, fund doesn't actually make a difference, there will be a, a, a kind of a disappointment between the expectations that I'm investing my money to make the world a better place and the realization that it was just uh, kind of a farce. Um, so I, I think that there's a huge moment right now where it is becoming the language of how impact is organized. I would only add to that, too, that the majority of endowments, I, I'm on a board that recommends divestment to Columbia University, and so that's another $9 billion endowment, and we're just recommending where to divest, and the majority of the money is tied up in hedge funds. That's true of every, every endowment. So most is tied up in hedge funds. You can't go into the portfolio of a hedge fund and divest. 
So you're really talking about when, when Stanford and others divest, they're not divesting from their, the majority of their capital. It's a tiny amount of direct investments that's pulling out of certain um, types of you know, coal or, or cigarettes or whatever it is. So I think that's important to remember because I found that sort of surprising and, and unfortunate. But until portfolios that are aggregated allow you to divest, we're really not make, moving the needle even on that. Just very brief, I, I mean, I would agree with everything that's been said. I think that the maybe two additional challenges with sort of tying some of these objectives to the SDGs um, are one, as you mentioned, there's sort of, you know, by some estimates, a two and a half trillion dollar gap um, between sort of development, pledged development assistance and, and what's going to cost to achieve some of these. And, you know, and maybe that's an order of magnitude off, who knows, but that those, not, you know, those start to be these sort of abstract numbers that we're not really going to bridge that gap. And so, you know, then it's this, they're having these sort of aspirations where we know there's going to be a shortfall or those somehow defeat it. You know, like we've already passed two degrees in climate change, so why bother? You know, I get a little bit nervous that um, if there's sort of these unachievable goals, they become a little bit abstract. And then secondly, I realize sort of we're here today because most of us are involved in some way in funding work in Africa. Um, but also, I think, as, as Brian mentioned, connecting the dots between um, individuals who want to invest with their values and their local communities, which often are in places like the U.S. matter, and even though the SDGs are global, they certainly have much more of an emerging market, developing country focus. So to the extent that the SDGs sort of don't necessarily fully capture the way we think about our own local communities, um, they again can feel a little bit distant and remote. That's going to do it for this special episode of Returns on Investment. Thanks so much to our panelists, Brian Trellstead, Managing Partner at Bridges Fund Management, Liz Luckett, Managing Partner at the Social Entrepreneurs Fund, and Georgia Levinson-Cohane, Executive Director of the Pershing Square Foundation. Special thanks, as always, to Isaac Silk, our technical producer. On behalf of David Bank and everyone at Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for joining, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.